Lord our God, by nature, we are blind. But even now, we only see dimly. As we open up your word, we pray that you may open our eyes, that we may see by the pages of your word the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ to help us to pay attention, to listen, to take it in, and to see you, who is altogether lovely and excellent. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let us turn back to Esther chapter 3. Tonight, in our studies in the book of Exodus, we are going to look at chapter 3, but who is sufficient to preach on this great chapter? Verse 1, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will not turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now before us is a great chapter in the Bible. Before us is an epoch-making revelation of God's own name and character. It's a life-changing day for Moses. It's also a definitive moment in all human history. After this day, the day of the burning bush, things were going to be different. It's going to be different for the whole humanity because God has revealed so much more in this chapter than ever before. But it all started off as a very typical, ordinary day in Moses' life as a shepherd in the wilderness of Sinai. You remember Moses was a prince in Egypt for 40 years, and because of his uh, untimely outburst of anger, eventuating in murder, 
he had to leave Egypt. And then he had been a, a shepherd, a wandering shepherd in some sense for the past 40 years. It's a long while, isn't it? 40 years. But then for some of us older folks, uh, we look back 40 years as if it were only yesterday. And I guess Moses would be feeling something like this. But this was the day when Moses met with God. Or rather, God makes himself known to Moses. It was a life-changing day for Moses. I wonder, can you think of a day like this in your life? A definitive day in your life? Maybe the day when you met with the Lord. And then, it was something like this. Moses was looking after the few goats or sheep in the barren, dry uh, wilderness of Sinai, and he saw a bush, a lowly, wild desert plant burning. I guess it won't be very unusual. It was dry and uh, just a bush burning. But as Moses looked on, he felt something strange, something mysterious, something attractive, something not of this world but from beyond. Because he was looking on and being an experienced uh, wilderness wanderer, uh, he noticed this bush got a tremendous energy. It was burning and burning, and it was not diminished. The fire just got brighter and brighter and stronger and stronger. Now Moses must have been, must have been looking at this plant for a good while, because if you look at uh, a tree burning for uh, two minutes, ten minutes perhaps, uh, you won't notice that this was a bush that did not burn up. He must have been looking at this plant for maybe half an hour, an hour, even more so. So he was standing at a distance, noticing uh, this burning bush. He was attracted to this. He thought to himself, fire needs fuel. Fire cannot burn on itself. Eventually, he could hold himself back no more. He was drawing near. He said, I'm going to look at this more closely. I'm going to find out the secret of why this bush is burning and not burned. As he got closer, a voice spoke out from the bush. God spoke to Moses, take off your sandals. For the place where you stand is holy ground. It wasn't because the ground by itself was holy. It was because God was there, burning in the bush. And then God told Moses, Now, I'm sending you to go back to Egypt and to bring my people out of the land of bondage. 
Well, 40 years ago, if God should call Moses, Moses might have been quite willing, but not now. Moses is now 80 years of age. When we come to that age, or even much younger than that, we don't want to start a new life. And furthermore, Moses is now completely humble. We can even say he was a broken man. He was still bearing the scars of being rejected by his own people 40 years ago and being pursued by the mighty king in Egypt. He must have been suffering from post-traumatic disorder for the past 40 years. And Moses had no ambition in life anymore. He just wanted to get by with his daily work as a shepherd and uh, he got a wife and two children and that, that was okay. He had no ambition anymore. How strange is God's timing and arrangement. When Moses had lost all his ambition, all his self-confidence, it's the time for God's calling Moses to be the great deliverer of Israel. Surely God's ways past finding out, isn't it? But when Moses heard that call, he replies in verse 11, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a poor shepherd. I live at the kindness and mercy of my father-in-law. Well, someone even said, Moses, shepherd wife, would be nothing in comparison to the princesses and the court ladies in Egypt. Well, if you have seen anything of those ancient Egyptian ladies, well, they were really fashionable, heavy makeup, uh, we won't go into details of that, but what a contrast. Who am I? Who am I? A poor man, a fugitive, to go back to Egypt? Not me. Who am I? That reminds us of Paul's exclamation in 2 Corinthians. There, it talks about God's servants, gospel workers, uh, in extension or believers. We are the fragrance of Christ to God. You know, friends, we all believers, gospel workers especially, we are the smell of Christ, the fragrance of Jesus to God the Father. To God the Father, we actually smell when we please Him. Have you thought of that? We are the fragrance of Christ to God. But then, 
two people. To those who are being saved and to those who are perishing, we are the fragrance of Christ. The smell, the aroma of death unto death, or the aroma of life unto life. You realize that, my Christian friends? We are the fragrance of Christ, but to those who reject the gospel, we are the smell of death. They not only don't like us, we smell death. Agnosis, uh, repulsive. But to those who are to be saved, we are the smell of life. And Paul says, who is sufficient of such things? Who can be a gospel minister? Who can be a gospel worker? Who is sufficient? Despite Paul's towering intellect, holy zeal, and boundless energy, he felt deeply his own personal insufficiency. Oh, that ministers of the gospel may learn this. A gospel minister, a gospel worker, whose self-confidence, whose food of themselves, just does not know what it means to be God's servant. So Moses cries out to God, Who am I? And God, in answering that question, says to him, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. That's not an issue. It only matters who I am and who should belong and a promise to be with you. So in this chapter, we have God saying to Moses and through Moses and the Holy Scriptures saying to us who he is. Moses, it doesn't matter who you who you are, I'm going to tell you who I am. And listen, Moses, I am who I am. And we learn so much about God in this chapter. What is God like? To start with, let us don't miss that little phrase. Here we are told, is the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses. The word angel in both Hebrew and somehow in Greek as well means messenger. Messenger. And this figure, the angel of the Lord, is a rather mysterious figure. I started off the first time in Genesis 16 when the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. I love this. The angel of the Lord appeared first to an African slave woman. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, Father Abraham. 
And now, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. But who is he? Is the angel of the Lord just any uh, average angel? Is this messenger of the Lord just an angel? You notice as you read on, uh, both here in Exodus 3 and way back in Genesis 16, uh, the angel of the Lord is identified with the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. But somehow the angel of the Lord is also distinguished from the Lord. So who is this angel of the Lord? I put it to you, as we look back uh, from the whole Bible, this angel of the Lord must be none other than the Son of God. Appear in the burning bush to Moses. In other words, it was Christ who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The New Testament does say, Abraham saw the glory of Christ and rejoiced. When was that? When did Abraham see Christ in the angel of the Lord? Well, at this stage, it's no more than a hint, but one of those clues. And we move on. We look at the burning bush again. This bush was just any average, lowly, desert plant. You know, uh, it's not attractive at all, not beautiful at all, just, just a desert plant, pretty dry. Uh, you won't put it in the Easter show. It's got no beauty. And yet, God himself came to this bush. God took up residence in this bush. God was in there. God was burning in this bush. And amazingly, God came to this bush. God was in it. The fire was burning. And the fire was not the bush was not consumed. The fact that the bush was not consumed is amazing. It means that this fire is not dependent on the bush to burn. To finally fuel. And the dry bush would provide good fuel. And the fire depends on, on the wood to burn. But here, God is here, but he's not dependent on the bush. What does it mean? God is all by himself. God is the all self-sufficient God. But the amazing thing is, God can come to a creature, and that creature can stand. Have you thought of that? The Son of God took upon himself 
a human nature, he became flesh. Christ our Lord is the very Son of God in human flesh. In the Transfiguration, our Lord Jesus revealed his glory. And the human body of Jesus was not consumed. And dear Christian friends, you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living in us. And despite all our frailty and sinfulness, we are not consumed. How can it be? If the Holy Spirit is living in me and in you, weak and fragile as we are, sinful as we are, we are to be consumed. Whoa, no. Not to be consumed. But coming back. Now we can sense in this chapter, and later on in the next chapter, Moses' quick unwillingness to go back to Egypt. He really doesn't want the job. Eventually, we come down to please send someone else. But we are in verse 13. Moses asked God, yes, okay, you are sending me back to Egypt. Uh, suppose I should go back and the people, my people should ask me, well, the God of your fathers has sent you to us. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What is your name? And God answered, I am who I am. I am who I am. Well, if you were going to do a PhD thesis on theology, maybe this is not a good topic. You know why? Uh, I'm no scholar, but I guess there'll be so many articles to read about people's opinion about this word, I am. What does it mean? It's so deep, isn't it? The simplest word in the Bible of profoundest significance. I am who I am. Well, let's have a go. It means I'm all by myself, I'm all sufficient, I'm self existent. You could be translated as I will be as I will be. I'm free from any constraints, I'm dependent on none, beholden to none. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is a self-sufficient, self-existent God. I am who I am. I guess I must have told you half a dozen of times that one of our pop songs, I, I know I only have a very small repertoire of pop songs. I don't like them, I have no interest in them. But as a teenager, I heard this song in Hong Kong. Uh, it goes by this phrase, I am who I am. I'm not going to sing it to you. It's one of those, uh, what we call, existential philosophy put into song. That song, nice melody, just keep on saying, well, uh, I am who I am, 
I'm going to be, uh, I'm not going to be bound to anything. I'm going to do my own things. Well, that is human autonomy. I am who I am. I'm not going to be bound by anything. This is the spirit of the, of our age, isn't it? I'm not. I'm not going to be bound by anything at all. Not even my given gender. Well, for human beings to say that is absolute folly. For God to say that is making Himself known. Moses, learn my name. I am who I am. And friends, we live by faith in the all-sufficient God. We don't live by own strength in God. We move and live and have our beings. After Paul says, who is sufficient of these things, it goes on to say, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. Paul has no confidence in himself, but he has all his confidence in God. Our sufficiency is from God. Our strength is from God. And God has made us to be sufficient as ministers, as servants of the New Testament. In ourselves, we have no strength. We can't do anything. But in Christ, we can do all things. In Philippians 4, verse 13, from within a prison cell, Paul can say, I can do all things. You ask Paul, Whoa, what, a, what a proud man you are, what arrogant. You can do all things? Paul says, yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then we can say to Paul, oh, you can't do all things. You can't do anything. It's Christ who's doing in you. What a comfort. What a blessing. What an encouragement we have. That by faith in Christ, whether we are gospel workers, whether we are housewife, whatever we may do, whatever we may face, we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. By myself, in myself, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I can't trust myself. I can't depend on myself. I don't know what myself will do. Uh, but in Christ, through Christ, I can do all things. Are you saying that, my dear friends? This is a paradox, isn't it? Of being a Christian. On the one hand, we are nobody. On the other hand, we are children of the living God. On the one hand, we have no confidence in ourselves. On the other hand, we can attempt great things for God. It was William Carey. The humble shoemakers, part-time Baptist pastor, you know, being a Baptist pastor in, uh, in those days in England, 
I was very humble. It's not a Baptist pastor uh, in Southern America. Not like that at all. Uh, he was only a part-time pastor because the church couldn't pay his stipend. Uh, but he says, I can attempt great things for God. We're going to go to the end of the world to push the gospel. Now what else do we come to learn about God here? We come to learn about God here that He's holy. When Moses drew near to the burning bush, God told him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is the first time that the word holy appears in the Bible. Now, we Christian people, we, we sing holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. We are so familiar with God's holiness, at least in ideas and doctrines, that we do not appreciate what a groundbreaking revelation this is. For Moses to be told that God is holy. You know, friends, when God appeared to Abraham, and then to Isaac and to Jacob and uh, Jacob's family and so on, it would be very, very hard for them to come to groups. What sort of God is their God? Because in the surrounding cultures, whether in ancient Mesopotamia or in Canaan, uh, there are many gods. But those gods are localized deities. Uh, those gods are violent, immoral, capricious. And the god in Egypt, well, they were flies and frogs and so on. Uh, when you think of the Greek gods, even though they, they did not live in that place, the, the god of ancient Greece, they, they were just a bunch of deplorables, but they say, uh, not just immoral, but grossly immoral, dishonest, and so on. That, that was the culture. But here Moses was told, God is holy. Even the place where Moses was standing is holy. What does it mean, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be separate from this world high and lifted up in contrast to human smallness and insignificance. It's most humbling for us to look at the night sky, isn't it? And consider the starry host. You know, when we are all gone from this world, even the youngest of us, even our babies, when we're all gone, the night sky will still be the same. Different people will look at the same sky. If we have any descendants at all, they will know next to nothing about us. 
I wonder how many of us have uh, photographs of our great-grandparents. To my own shame, I know hardly the names of my grandparents. Not through my fault. And our own descendants, our great-grandchildren perhaps, to them in the future, it matters not at all whether we once live on this planet Earth. We follow that. We are so small, so insignificant. God is above and apart from this creation. He is holy, He is eternal. And not just that, He is absolutely pure to human sinfulness. You know, we encounter holiness in human flesh when we look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Try to read a gospel afresh. Maybe Luke's gospel, maybe Mark's gospel, John, any one of them. And then you consider the person of our Lord Jesus. There's no one like him. Our Lord Jesus is holding us in human flesh. He was among men, but he was entirely apart in terms of his holiness. And we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to live a consecrated life to God. I still remember as a child. My mother said this to me again and again, especially when I was doing something which was not quite right. She said, we are Christian people. We are meant to be separated from the world. We are meant to be holy. My mother is certainly not a theologian. But that is something she learned in church in those days. We are to live consecrated life. We are to be different from the world. We are meant to be peculiar, as we said this morning. Are we? We live in a time when Christian people are taught and conditioned to be like the world. And Christians are embarrassed if they do not know the in things in the culture, whether it's pop music, whether it's movies or entertainment. Well, uh, we are almost taught to be like the world. We are embarrassed if we don't know the things in the world. But that is completely wrong. We are meant to be a holy, consecrated, separate people. Why? As our Lord Jesus says to his own disciples, be holy, for your Father in heaven is holy. What else do we learn about God here? 
what we learn about God here, that He's a personal God. In this chapter, in the burning bush, God makes Himself known to Moses. And through Moses, the people of Israel, and through the Holy Scriptures, God makes Himself known to us as a personal God. Here, God appeared to Moses, God spoke to Moses, and friends, God has not only spoken to us, but He has engaged us to be His conversation partners. We should not only emphasize that God has spoken to us, but He has engaged us to be His conversation partners, to speak with Him. We listen to God when we read His Word, when we listen to the preaching of His Word, but we also pray. We also pour our hearts to God. We sing our praises to God. God has engaged us to be His conversation partners. And here God is dealing with Moses and God converses with him, God talks with him, and God says to him, in verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. For the past 40 years, I guess Moses would have asked himself many a times, does God really know about his people's sufferings? We've been like this for a long while. Does God really care? And now God is saying to him, I have seen, I have heard, I know, I care. What a comfort it is to know that God sees us. He hears our cries. He knows all about our troubles and sorrows. He put our tears into his own bottle. Our God is a personal God. And here God says in verse 6, I've come down. I've come down to the bush to call you to go back to Egypt. And you are going to deliver my people from that land of bondage. And you are to bring them to the promised land, a land full of milk and honey. God has come down. Oh friends, you know, God has come down, not just to the burning bush, but God has come down in the person of His Son, in the most unexpected manner, to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin, to be born in a manger, to grow up as a poor man, to die for sinners, as sinner substitutes, and to conquer death and rose again. God has come down. God has sent us a mediator between the holy God and wretched sinners. It may be a little bit too clever to say this, but it may help. God has sent a broken to a broken people. Moses. It's now called by God to be that broken. You know, when you train stock, when you buy shares, you need a broker. 
As far as I know, you can't do it by yourself. You need a broker, you need a mediator. And God has sent Moses to be the broker, the mediator, to a broken people. And dear friends, this is what we like to tell our fellow Australians. So many of our fellow Australians, they say they believe in God, but to them, God is just a mere impersonal force. God is something within each one of us. We want to tell them, God is not something, God is someone. Buddhism is a deep philosophy. But most Buddhists cannot handle that. Even most Buddhists, they want a God who cares and loves and shows compassion. It's not enough for them to be told everything is just empty. That's not comforting enough. Maybe philosophers can handle that. But for most people, for all people out there say, we want a personal God. And the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. It's a personal God. But we press on. What else is God? Or what is God like? We learn here in this chapter that God is a covenant keeping God. Have you noticed already in this chapter there's a repeated emphasis on God as the covenant God of his people. In verse 7, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In verse 15, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I've surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Why is there such repetition? Of course, for emphasis. We learn from this repeated saying that I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. 
It's God himself who appeared to Abraham some 500 years before Moses and make a covenant with him, confirm the covenant with Isaac and then with Jacob. And God is here saying to Moses, I'm a covenant-keeping God. I keep all my promises. What a blessing it is to know such a God. What mercy it is to go to the Holy Scriptures and we can appropriate all the promises in the Bible. And we can say they are mine. And we can be sure that God will keep all his promises. And therefore, my dear friends, let us learn to trust God completely. And pile Why are we fearful at times? Why are we anxious? It's because we have forgotten. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He will keep His word. This is the new covenant in my blood. Christ our Lord will keep us. One more thing. God is with us. Amen. When Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go back to Egypt? God says in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, I promise you, I'm going to be with you. You've got nothing but your staff on your hand. But I'm going to be with you. I promise you, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, and I will bring you out to this following mount, and you shall worship me here. What a blessing, what a comfort to know, God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Let me finish by reading to you the wonderful promise of God in Isaiah 43. Verse 2. You know, Isaiah gives out promises and comfort by both hands, isn't it? Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, it shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, long before we face the waters and the fire. We fear. We tremble. Oh, forgive us of our unbelief. 
We cry out to you, we do believe. Help our unbelief. We do pray for our country, for this innocent world. There are still so many, millions of souls who do not know you, who are rejecting you, who are chasing after the idols in this world. May you show them your mercy. May you make yourself known to them. And make us so go to be messengers of your grace. That each day, every day, whenever we can, whenever we have opportunity to make Christ known. Oh, bless your church, your people. May we know your presence. May you help your church, your people, to shine as burning light in a dark and evil age. Oh God, even as we close another lost day, may our believers who are rising up to bless your holy name be with them. For Jesus' sake. Amen.